So I, I wasn't sure what to do. I don't generally do this introduction thing. We just sing and then I stand up and preach, right? Um, one of the radio students said to me bef before I went back there to get mic'd up, said, I said, how are you? They said, fine. And they said, how are you? I said, fine. And so you ready? I said, yes. They said, well, don't suck. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Last night I was at Brad's house and he said, now, you know, you're taking on the gospel and you're going to say some things people aren't going to like, so you just need to be ready to apologize. So in advance, I'm sorry. All right, we'll see how it goes. All right. uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if you'll turn there with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. First Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, He appeared also to me. Let me pray. Father, we ask, we ask that as we look at your word, as we understand what it is that your spirit has superintended inerrantly, infallibly, authoritatively, sufficiently for your church, we pray that your spirit would give us ears to hear what he's saying to the church. We pray, Father, that we would, we would have a divine jealousy for the church, for the church to remain faithful to the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that, that you would be at work by your Spirit in our hearts and minds. And that we we together with you would want more than anything else to see your names, your son's name exalted in all the earth. That Jesus would be named among every tribe and tongue and people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Notice how Paul starts in verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, and then notice that next phrase, of the gospel. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. Now when Paul talks about the gospel, he's He's simply using a Greek word that means the good news. The gospel is, and, it, and it, it needs to be said, the gospel is good news. The gospel is not good advice. The gospel is not something you do. The gospel is good news. The gospel is something that's been done for you and is being announced to you. When you read the newspaper... 
You don't open the paper or look on the television news for advice. You open the newspaper to read the news. They're telling you what happened. They aren't telling you what to do. Well, the gospel is the historical news, historical news of something good that's happened outside of you. Look at what Paul says next. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. Pay attention to those words. It's not just he's reminding the brothers of the gospel, but of the gospel he preached to them. The gospel is always, always, in every instance, announced, proclaimed, preached, heralded by its very nature as good news. The gospel can only be communicated by being announced, proclaimed, preached, or heralded. The gospel is not something you discover. It's not something you slowly move in the direction of. It's not something you do. It's not something you gradually turn toward through regular obedience. The gospel is something that happened outside of you in history. It is good news, and it must necessarily be announced to you by another, by a messenger. Everyone who calls the name of the Lord will be saved. But how are they to call on the name of the one in whom they have not believed? And, and how are they to believe in the name of the one in whom they've not heard? And how are they to hear unless someone, what? Preaches to them. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news, right? He actually says, how are they to preach unless they're sent? And then how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news? The gospel is something outside of you, and it must be announced to you. That's the consistent pattern we see in every instance of the New Testament where the gospel is being carried to another person or another city. The gospel is proclaimed, the gospel is preached, the gospel is witnessed to, the gospel is testified about, the gospel is heralded. Look at what Paul says next in 1 Corinthians 15, 1-2. Now I'd remind you, brothers... Of the gospel which I preach to you, of the gospel I preach to you, which you, notice that phrase, which you received. Notice the passivity of that. You receive it. Now look what he goes on to say. And by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. The gospel is received and believed. It's good news of something wholly outside of you that happened in history that's proclaimed to you, which you receive through faith. See, through faith, this, this passive reception is the only way to receive the good news. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. There Paul uses a rhetorical device that, that you might know as a way to saying, I'm proud. Like when my wife walks in and says, and I say, she says, how do I look? And I say, not bad. She knows I'm saying, you look good. Well, what's Paul saying? For I'm not ashamed. For I'm proud of the gospel. Right? right? What does he go? For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. What is? The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who what? Believes. Please hear this. The gospel is always, always properly responded to by faith, by trust, by belief. It is so because it is good news to be received to be believed. Now look at the content of the gospel that Paul lays out in verse 3. For I delivered to you 
as of first importance what I also received. Notice, Paul also received it. He's delivering it, this news, that he also received. And what does he go on to say? That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And that then he appears to the various apostles beginning with Peter. The Gospel is the good news of what Jesus Christ has accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection so that we might be forgiven for our, of our sins and saved. And you might say, as you're sitting there, well, okay, okay, that's fine. That's all pretty obvious, isn't it? Did I, did I come to a missiology conference to hear what ought to be pretty obvious to all Christians? But, but look at how Paul starts 1 Corinthians 15.1. Now I would what? Remind you, brothers. Paul is constantly reminding the church of the gospel. And think about the letter to Corinth in the first place, 1 Corinthians. Here's a church that's in a mess. How does Paul build this letter? He begins chapter 1 by talking about Christ what? Crucified. He brackets this book in chapter 15 by talking about what? Christ resurrected. Do you think there's any mistake in Paul's rhetorical device, if you will, in building a letter where he starts with the crucifixion and he brackets that thing with the resurrection? Do you think he's intentionally trying to communicate a message? How about the book of Romans? You've got to deal with the problems between the Jews and the Gentiles in Rome. That's one of the reasons for the book of Romans. The other reason is it's a missionary letter. But you see the problem between the Jews and the Gentiles in Romans 14 and 15. But what does Paul do in the letter to Rome to deal with those dilemmas, those problems? He writes 11 chapters making the gospel clear. How about Ephesians? Six chapters. First three chapters. First half, just clarifying the gospel. Colossians, four chapters. First two chapters, clarifying the gospel. And actually the first four verses or so of chapter three. Over and over and over again, Paul feels the necessity to remind the brothers of the gospel. And he does so because it's so easily lost. He actually tells us he feels a divine jealousy he feels a divine jealousy for the fact that the church so quickly forsakes the gospel. In 2 Corinthians and chapter 11, listen how Paul speaks. I, verse 1, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. I feel a divine jealousy for you, a godly jealousy for you. For I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Hear Paul's frustration and concern for the church? Another Jesus comes along? Another spirit comes along? Another gospel comes along, and you put up with it so readily. You just let it flood in. You, you let it into the church like Adam lets the serpent into the garden to deceive his wife. And Paul feels a divine jealousy for the bride of Christ. 
he gets most specific about this, though, in, in the book of Galatians. In the book of Galatians, he's just flat out anou- announces his astonishment at how quickly the church is abandoning the gospel. What's interesting about Galatians is, it, it may be Paul's first letter, it's one of the only letters, if not Paul's only letter, where he doesn't start with a thanksgiving about them. I think it's his only letter where he doesn't say, here's what I'm thankful for with you. He, he just announces who he is, and then, and then look at how he launches in this letter after he announces who he is and gives the general greetings. In verse 6, what does he say? Galatians chapter 1, and verse 6, look at what, what Paul does. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. See, there really isn't any other good news. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. That's what they want to do. Now, I I want to be clear about this. We are reading Paul's selections from Paul's letters or referencing selections of Paul's letters to churches Paul planted. And they are going astray from the gospel. What would ever make us think? What would ever make us arrogant enough to assume that the same can't happen to us? If you ever read church history, you're going to read 2,000 years of battle for gospel preaching. That's what you're going to read. But Paul goes on to say this. Look what he says. But even if we, now who's we? That's Paul, an apostle. Even if apostle, even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Anathema, condemned. Look what he goes on to say, which is probably obvious to us all at this point already. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Well, clearly, Paul, when you start a letter this way, you're not seeking the approval of men. Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. I want to look at verse 8 closely again, quickly, and ask this. But even if we are an angel from heaven, and maybe I should insert something else, or a really effective, sincere missionary, or a really important, well-known pastor should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached, let him be accursed. What's fascinating is in Galatians is that Paul applies this abandonment of the gospel first to the apostle Peter. Applies it first to the apostle Peter and Barnabas. Barnabas. You know who Barnabas is? This is the man who comes along and brings Paul into the church. This is the son of encouragement. And Paul applies the abandonment of the gospel first to him and to Peter, the apostle. Look at Galatians chapter 2, and we'll look at how they're abandoning the gospel. Verse 11, Galatians 2 verse 11, but when Cephas, that 
that's Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. So notice this. Peter was fine to eat with the Gentiles to embrace them as Christian brothers prior to certain men coming from James. But when they came, when they came he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Now, I don't have time to unwind all of this. Let me just give you the, just the quick inside of what's happening here. You have Jewish Christians wondering, after 1,500 years of living under the Mosaic Covenant, how in the world are these Gentiles coming into Christ's church under the Jewish Messiah without being circumcised? How, how is that happening? They ought to be circumcised. If you're not circumcised, you're unclean. You're a Gentile. You don't have the sign of the covenant. You are outside. You are not a child of the covenant. How are they now coming into the, the church of the Jewish Messiah? We can't accept them, the Jews begin to argue, unless they'll get circumcised. They need to add that. Trusting in Christ is not enough. They must also be circumcised. So when the circumcision party arrives, Peter, sort of concerned about pleasing man, separates himself from the Gentile Christians, accepting the premise that unless those Gentiles are circumcised, they are unclean, they are outside the church, they're not really justified. So Paul goes on to say, look what he says. For before certain men, verse 12, came from James, he was eating with Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw, now catch this phrase, when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, in other words, not consistent with the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? And he goes in to rebuke Peter. In other words, a group of Jewish Christians were teaching that Gentiles were still unclean, not worthy to keep company with, unjustified unless they're circumcised, and Peter uses this phrase. He does not say, or Paul, sorry, uses this phrase. He does not say that Peter abandoned belief in Christ and the cross and resurrection. Do you hear that? Never says that. Never says Peter abandoned belief in Christ, belief in the cross and the resurrection. What does he say? Peter's conduct was not consistent with the truth of the gospel. Peter's behavior of separating from the Gentiles and really the, declaring them unclean for not doing particular works, namely circumcision, was out of step with the gospel that all, both Jews and Gentiles, are justified, forgiven of their sins, declared righteous by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Peter's behavior instead was consistent with the Judaizers' doctrine that Gentiles must add circumcision if they hope to be justified, if they hope to be God's people. So Paul is saying that justification, forgiveness of sins, and declaration of righteousness is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, and not by works of the law. Look what he goes on to say in verse 15. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. What is a person not justified by? Works of the law. What is a person not justified by? Obedience. 
We all agree on that? They're justified, not justified by works of the law or obedience, but through what? Faith in Jesus, Messiah. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not what? By works of the law because by works of the law, by obedience, no one will be justified. No one. I want you to catch the emphasis. Peter was not going astray from the gospel by writing a new doctrine of justification. He wasn't. Peter was going astray by ministering as an apostle in such a way that he betrayed the gospel. Hear that? His ministry behavior as an apostle, as a pastor, as a fellow elder, was out of step with, inconsistent with the gospel. His error was that embracing works righteousness in the way he ministered among the Galatians, he was implicitly buying into a Judaizing doctrine that is works of the law plus faith in Christ brings you justification. Thus, Peter was denying the gospel. <clears throat> Have you ever considered that you can actually profess, you can actually profess you believe the gospel and at the same time you're professing you believe the gospel, you're functionally denying the gospel in the way that you operate in ministry. Peter was doing that as a ministry. He was implicitly denying the gospel while stating he believed it. Now, I, I want you to catch this. It's so important we understand this as a setup to where I'm going. Peter was a brother in Christ. Elect of, the father, elect of the Father, blood-bought by the Son, indwelled by the Spirit, an apostle. Someone who knew better. Yet, he was practicing ministry in a way that denied the gospel. And Paul rebukes him for it. Peter said he believed the gospel, and he did. But his ministry practice, hear that, his methodology among the Galatians, demonstrated that he was operating and ministering consistently with a false gospel. Pay attention to that, because false gospels can creep in quickly. Even the Apostle Peter and Barnabas were being tripped up by embracing a works-oriented gospel in their ministry methods. And the other Galatians were following suit. False gospels come fast. Please hear this. False gospels come fast and they get embraced widely. Why? Because that's the work of Satan, folks. From the beginning, he is in the ears of God's people lying to them. And this is the most glorious word God has ever given the gospel. You think Satan doesn't want to distort that? Now I say this next thing with some hesitance and with the hope that you hear me. What I say is couched in similar terms that, I hope you hear this, that Paul is addressing Peter. I think there are brothers in Christ, brothers in Christ, Christian missionaries even, who are walking inconsistently with the gospel in their method of mission. I, I want you to understand that I feel the weight of what I'm saying. I, I shudder at the thought of speaking ill 
of brothers in Christ. But I feel a divine jealousy for Christ's church, and I'm compelled to seek the approval of God and not men. And thus, I would be deficient in my duty as a gospel minister if I neglected to point this out. I think these brother missionaries would state they believe the same gospel that Paul preaches, and I am making no declaration about their justification before the Lord. None. I'm not questioning their salvation. I'm not questioning the fact that they would profess the same gospel I do. I am, in fact, assuming they are brothers in Christ with a deep desire to see many people saved, but their missiological methodology is inconsistent with the Christian gospel message. Their missions method is works-based. Hear that? Their view of leading people to Christ denies the gospel. This movement, known as disciple-making movements, or DMM, teaches a method of discipleship that they call obedience. I want you to hear this. This is important language. It's important in their books. It's important in their method. In fact, it's essential. Obedience-based discipleship. Hear that? The basis, the foundation of discipleship is in this model? Obedience. Not faith. Not grace. Not the gospel. Obedience. Unless you miss that, the basis or foundation of being a disciple in Christ is not in this methodology, faith in Christ crucified and resurrected. The basis of discipleship is your obedience. Now, I don't expect you to take my word for that because I just made for what most people in this room is probably an outrageous claim. And I don't expect you to take my word for outrageous claims. So I I want you to hear their word. I went and read their books, listened to their videos, or watch their videos, listen to sermons. Um, one of the books I'm going to read a paragraph from is, is called Miraculous Movements by Jerry Truesdale. Uh, this is the guy who probably popularizes DMM more than anybody else, and DBS, Discovery Bible Studies, which are at the heart of this methodology, on page 101, so you can go look it up if you want. Miraculous Movements, Jerry Truesdale, page 101. <clears throat> their church today is preaching to produce conversion. Now, I just want to stop and ask you the question, is that bad? Then teaching to increase knowledge, to which I as a pastor think, if that's the case, then we're failing miserably because I don't talk to a whole lot of Christians who are super knowledgeable about their Bibles. Then giving periodic attention, usually in sermons, to encourage converts to obey what they have learned. Jesus' strategy was very different. Now listen, in fact, as we have noted earlier, what Jesus did with the 12 was exactly the opposite. He discipled them to conversion. He selected the 12 and spent more than three years with them. They went where he went, asking questions, watching what he did, doing it with them, and then doing it by themselves, being coached and mentored to be obedient disciples. Now catch this, They did it, they did it, they did it, they were obedient until they were converted. Hear that? Then one day he asked, who do you say that I am? All those years, Jesus was revealing himself to the twelve. He brought them from the point of not knowing him to the point where they discovered who he really was and were ready to follow him anywhere and even to die for him This is the model of 
of disciple-making that Jesus gave us. What you do is you get people, you have them follow you around, you have them obey day by day, thing after thing that they read, until they finally discover that Jesus is the Messiah and are converted. That's the process they give you. Obedience-based discipleship. Is that right? Is that that the model Jesus gave the apostles? That's the claim they're making. That's the model that Jesus gave the apostles. Is that true? Did Jesus teach the apostles the methodology of gathering people and having them obey over time until they're finally converted to Christ? Was that the method the apostles learned from Jesus? And by the way, was that the method we then see the apostles use in the book of Acts? Lest you think I'm overdoing it when I say the methodology of those who teach obedience-based discipleship is not in step with the gospel, I want you to hear how David and Paul Watson, really the pioneering fathers of DMM, define their model in their book, Contagious Disciple-Making. Go buy the book, Contagious Disciple-Making, page 37. These guys are the founders of DMM. Listen to how they define this. In this model, DMM, and most specifically here, Discovery Bible Studies, everyone is trained to ask the question, in this situation, how will I or we be obedient to the Word of God? Faith, now listen to the next phrase he says, faith is defined as, now that caught my attention. Great, what is faith? We need to know. We're going to understand the heart of your approach. What is faith? Faith is defined as the continuous act of choosing to be obedient to God's word, regardless of what it may cost, even our lives. Is that what faith is in the Christian gospel? Is faith defined as continuous obedience? Are faith and continual obedience interchangeable? If so, then we can say we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, or we can also say we're justified by obedience alone to Christ alone. Same thing, right? We're justified by faith in Christ. We're justified by works of the law in Christ. If faith and continuous obedience are the same thing, in this theology, we can reinterpret Romans 1.16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to all who continually obey. Is faith simply continuous obedience? Is that how the Bible defines faith? Or is Hebrews 11.1 right, that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen? Is faith continual obedience, or is faith resting on the finished work of another, of Christ and his finished work on the cross? Friends, this is no small matter. That definition of faith would make Rome blush. They'd be like, man, those people are legalistic. I'm not kidding. I'm not trying to even be funny. Frankly, this is not even a false gospel by methodology only. This is a false gospel by actual message. In the book, he states faith is continuous obedience. But the whole disciple-making method of DMM is based upon this false gospel, which is why it's called obedience-based discipleship. Let me give you another example by way of a story. I was at a perspectives class a year plus ago, taught by a leader of a major sending organization. He didn't write a book, so I'm not going to name him or his organization. 
This particular leader oversees 30 different sending bases. And he's a prospective speaker. He was commending disciple-making movements, discovery Bible studies, and obedience-based discipleship to us. That was his session. Now, there are several people actually in this room today who were present and can verify my story. And by the way, I actually have audio recordings of it as well if you want proof. Some of those who were present here were also present for the follow-up meeting I had with this brother after being deeply concerned with his teaching. Let, let me tell you what he said while speaking of his ministry to Muslims. He talked of how he would have Muslims meet daily and read a passage of Scripture as part of a discovery Bible study. And as they did so, they would decide what command of God they should obey that day. Now, he told us very clearly that these Muslims were rejecting the biblical idea that Jesus is God and man. They were rejecting the biblical idea and truth that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. However, <clears throat> he said that one of his Muslim friends heard the command to love your wife. And, and so later that man was making coffee and he realized he should love his wife by making her coffee too. Thus, this missions leader declared the Holy Spirit was at work in this unbeliever. To which I thought, gosh, I mean, how do some people imagine unbelievers? Just like cutting heads off chickens and, you know, acting crazy all the time. They do kind things. You know that, right? Unbelieving people without the Holy Spirit do kind things for people. You guys understand that? That is not a sign that, that they're Holy Spirit indwelt because they did something kind. But, but he's indwelt by the Holy Spirit because he did something kind. This unbeliever was daily, he's daily obedient. This is what this guy said. This unbeliever was daily obeying God's word as he shifted his allegiance toward Christ, toward Jesus. The veil was, he actually his hand motion, the veil was slowly lifting and he was converting to Christ through regular obedience to God's word. So in this model of conversion to Christ, conversion to Christ is a process. It comes through daily obeying God's word as you shift allegiances to Christ. And any obedience to God's command is clearly the work of the Holy Spirit who's slowly converting you based upon your obedience to be a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. And the question is, is that the gospel? <clears throat> Can you slowly be converted through daily obeying God's word as the Holy Spirit through that process slowly turns your allegiance to Christ even while you're still rejecting Christ's deity and Christ's work in his death and resurrection until you finally reach full submission to Jesus Christ as Lord? Well, if faith is defined as continuous obedience, then the answer is yes, you can. Yes, you can be converted that way. There, there are so many problems in the argument, it's, it's hard to know where to begin, but this is the consistent message coming out of those pushing DMM and DBS. I wish I had time to press into the horrifying gospel implications regarding how they turn John 14 through 16 in this book, in the chapter, both books actually, John chapters 14 through 16, into a display in their exposition of those chapters as to how obedience is the condition, their language, not mine, obedience is the condition to receiving the Holy Spirit. To receiving the Father's love. That's their language. I, I actually read both these books and thought, how do they slip through without people screaming about, wait a minute, what's going on here? This is not the gospel which we received. Preaching, proclaiming, teaching, or heralding the gospel as good news of what Christ 
has accomplished in hope of seeing people converted to Christ and planting a church is ruled ineffective. It doesn't work. You know there's one philosophy that Americans have contributed to the world. You know that, right? We have one philosopher that's contributed, one philosophy of the world, really, from a historical perspective. You guys know what it is? Pragmatism. Does it work? Well, that kind of preaching, teaching, planting churches, it just doesn't work. God's doing a new thing. The Spirit is blowing a fresh wind. And now, unbelievers, read the Bible. You, you, what you do is you get them together, you have them read the Bible, you have them interpret it for themselves with the help of the Holy Spirit. By the way, no teachers, because teachers, men, are always the ones who corrupt things. A single teacher always want to lead to heresy. And by the way, in the gr- book, they say that groups, they actually self-regulate. They protect themselves from errors. Groups do that. To which I thought, have they heard about the Tower of Babel? Or the crowd outside calling for Jesus' blood to be on them and their children? Do groups naturally self-protect from error? Is that what we read about the church in Corinth or the church in Galatia or the church in Colossae? That just groups just naturally self-protect from error? We don't need teachers. The Holy Spirit's a divine teacher. He just comes in and you daily obey as the Holy Spirit helps you as an unbeliever interpret the scripture and you obey it and you are slowly shifting your allegiance to Christ. That's what DMM claims works. And it is what they claim Jesus taught the apostles to do. And I'm submitting to you that that is in fact a methodology that is inconsistent with the biblical gospel and consistent with a false gospel. Now you might say certainly they would not deny the gospel of Christ crucified and resurrected. And, and, I, and I want to I be charitable. I want you to hear what I'm saying. I do not assume these folks are attempting to maliciously undermine the gospel. That is not my assumption. My starting place is that they are brothers in Christ who desire to see people saved, who are looking for methodologies that give some kind of signs of working. And then they write and speak poorly and inconsistently. And my prayer is they might hear this message and repent of what is at best their unclear doctrine and what is at worst a false gospel. But the fact remains that their methodology implicitly and their writings and teachings explicitly deny the gospel. Friends, it's possible. It's possible for brothers in Christ, even apostles, even well-meaning missionaries producing big numbers with great stories to deny the gospel. Peter's ministry in Galatia was implicitly denying the gospel. The Galatians following Peter and the Judaizers in this were doing the same. Look at Galatians chapter 3. Verse 1, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? See, who's cast a spell on you? And, and the answer to the question Paul knows implicitly is Satan has. It was before your eyes that Jesus, Messiah, was publicly portrayed as crucified. You have had the gospel preached to you. It's, you saw it. You know what happens? Paul says that the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. And what happens when God speaks light into darkness in the heart of an unbeliever? It's like they see now. They see the gospel. And what he's saying is the gospel was preached to you and the Holy Spirit made you alive and you saw Christ crucified 
You saw he died for your sins, so look what he goes on to say. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law, by obedience, or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh, by your works? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law, do so by obedience, or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Look at what Paul said. How has Satan got a hold of you? You heard the gospel of Jesus' finished work on the cross. You know Jesus is sufficient. You know he is. Yet you're adding to his work. You never received the Spirit by doing works of the law. You never received the Spirit by obedience. Did you ever receive the Spirit by obedience or by faith in Christ and his work? Please hear this. The Spirit is given by faith in Christ. He's actually promised by Peter in Acts 2 as one of the gifts of the gospel. Repent. What, you know, they're cut to the heart. It says they're cut to the heart in Acts 2. What shall we do? What does he say? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins. What are you going to get? If you repent, you get what? The forgiveness of your sins. And then what does it say? Look at your sins. And you will receive the gift of what? The Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and for your children, for all those who are far off, everyone to whom the Lord our God calls. Faith is resting on the work of another. Trusting Christ, at the end of the day, folks, is looking away from my pathetic attempts to obey God. So trusting Christ is. Trusting Christ is not a compilation of my pathetic attempts to obey God. Trusting Christ is looking away from my pathetic attempts to obey God and looking to Jesus who obeyed God for me, who paid the penalty for my disobedience on the cross and who rose from the dead so that I might be saved. And, and I want you to hear me on this. It is necessary that you grasp that methods are always built upon a message. Always. Methods are not neutral. And thus, methods can deny the gospel. So what was the message the apostles taught? And what was the method they used? In case you don't know what I think it is yet, look at Acts chapter 2. Let's look at what they taught, the message, and their method. Look at Acts chapter 2. Here's where we see the apostles doing this. Now, for the sake of time, I'm going I'm to cut back. I was going to go through Acts 2, Acts 3, Acts 8, Acts 10, Acts 14, Acts 17, but I'm not going to do all that. You're going to have to go back and look them up and trust me that the same message and the same method is used in every single one of those passages. It's used to Jews. It's used to Samaritans. It's used with Gentiles, God-fearing Gentiles. It's used with complete pagan Gentiles. It's used by Peter. It's used by Paul. Same message, same method. What is it? Look at Acts 2. Verse 22, you know this, Peter has just explained to them what is going on um, in the sense that they, the Holy Spirit's descended, they're now speaking in tongues, and they're declaring the mighty acts of God. In other words, they seem to be reviewing and praising God through the Old Testament works he's done, it, up through the gospel, and then Peter says this is grounded in what was promised in Joel 2, and then look at what he says in verse 22. Men of Israel, 
hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Now notice the review. Jesus lived, he ministered among us, Jesus was crucified for our sins, Jesus rose from the dead. You hear that? Now, let me skip down to verse 32. This Jesus, God raised up, he resurrected him. And of that, we are all witnesses. They're witnessing to it. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, here's Jesus in his exaltation, ascended to the right hand of the Father, where he is King of kings and Lord of lords. And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. There's the message, folks. Jesus lived. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father where he reigns as Lord. That is always the message in every passage, in every gospel presentation of the book of Acts. Now, there are relative lengths. Some are condensed and much shorter. Some are much longer. Incidentally, if you read out any of these sermons, the readout time is maybe two or three minutes on the longest one. And you know those guys weren't preaching for two or three minutes. So Luke has condensed this, but look at what he says in verse 37, how they respond. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent. And incidentally, for for Luke, that language, repentance, is interchangeable with faith. It's like two sides of the same coin. Here you have Peter saying, repent. Later with the Philippian jailer, what does Paul say? He doesn't say repent, he says believe in the Lord Jesus two sides of the same coin. Repentance turning from belief, turning to. Turning from my sin and self-righteousness, turning to Jesus, my righteousness. Verse, repent and be baptized. In other words, this is not a private conversion. This is a public one. This is something that just happens in the recesses of your heart alone as an individual. This happens publicly. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, what do you get if you respond with repentance? For the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So there's two gifts there, really, the forgiveness of your sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Notice the elements. Jesus lived and ministered. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus is now the ascended Lord. Repent of your sins. That's your response. Turn from yourself to Christ in faith. Be baptized. What do you receive? Forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. So you're united to Christ. You have new life. You have the declaration of justification. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Now what was Peter's method? Look at verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. He didn't lead them through a process of self-discovery. He preached. Look at verse 38. And Peter said to them, he taught them, 
Verse 40, and with many other words, that's how we know these sermons were condensed. It's like saying, my pastor said this, and then with many other words. <laughs> many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Now, there's more to say about the apostles' presentation of the gospel here. If you notice in all their presentations, they always root them in the Old Testament with the Jews. In the case of the Gentiles, they actually bring them back to the creation account. Uh, but frankly, that's not a dispute with DMM, so I'm not going there. They will say, we need to go from creation to Christ. Amen. We agree with that 100%. People have got to know who God is, what the problem is, before they even understand the solution God offers. We agree with that. They don't dispute that, so I'm not going there in this particular sermon. But I, I can keep replicating this forum, folks. Same message, same method. They preach, they proclaim boldly, they witness, they say with many other words, they exhort. And the message and the method are necessarily linked. The gospel of Jesus Christ is good news to be proclaimed. It is not good advice to be discovered and obeyed. What does Paul say about his ministry? I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians. One of my favorite words, barbarians. You know what that is? It's an onomatopoeia. It's also one of my favorite words. You've got to like it. But an onomatopoeia is a word that says its own name. Barbarians, the reason the Greeks in the Greek language called them barbarians is because when they heard the, those from Northern Europe, etc., coming down, when they heard them speak their languages, they felt like all they were hearing was bar, 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 bar. So they called them barbarians. I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. And what does Paul say? So I am eager to lead obedience-based discovery Bible studies. No. Preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who slowly turns toward Christ through daily obedience. No. Everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from one moment of obedience to another. No. From faith for faith. For as it is written, the righteous shall live by daily obedience. No. The righteous shall live by faith. He never says he's interested in going to a place to encourage them to discover the truth for themselves as they slowly grow into disciples through obeying the word. We need to be saved from the wrath due to us, which springs from our disobedience to God, and we do not get saved from the penalty of our disobedience by our own continuous obedience. Quite the opposite. We hear the gospel of our salvation heralded, preached, proclaimed, taught. We hear a message from outside of us about the good news of what Jesus Christ accomplished in history for us in his life and death and resurrection and then declared that is declared to us and trusting in that message in faith we call in the name of the Lord and we're saved just to conclude now I would remind you brothers I would remind you brothers of the gospel I preached to you which you received in which you stand 
and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. Let me pray. Father, we are thankful that you, in your great love for us, sent your Son, Jesus, to purchase on our behalf the grace that we needed to forgive us our sins, to declare us righteous in Him through faith, and that You sent Your Spirit, who is the guarantee, the down payment, He is the one who unites us to your Son through faith, who gives us new life, in whom we are a new creation, the one who witnesses to Christ relentlessly, pointing us to him always. Father, we're thankful that you've sent him, that he assists us, that he helps us, that he witnesses to your Son for us and in us so that we might be saved. Father, we are grieved by how quickly how quickly your church from the first century till now deserts the gospel. We ask that you, by your Spirit, would be powerfully at work to continually remind us of the gospel of our salvation. That it is done completely outside of us, accomplished by your Son, Jesus Christ applied to us by the Spirit through faith as we rest on Him, as we receive Him. May we never forget that. May we as gospel ministers be relentless about that. And may we have the spine, the backbone, to challenge anyone who preaches to us another gospel for the sake of that brother's soul. And for the sake of your name being exalted in all the earth, in your church, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks.